you need is an app on your phone. There are so many music streaming services that it's easy to discover artists, often by pure accident or algorithm. The downside to that is music is becoming an increasingly personal experience and much less communal. We aren't able to talk about it as much because everyone is listening to different things. But there is also a tremendous upside, and that upside is this. I don't remember what year it was, but sometime when I was in college, two things, two things happened. I became really into the band Nickel Creek, and I discovered the website Pandora. Nickel Creek is a cross between country, bluegrass, and indie music, um, and Pandora is an internet radio station where you put the name of a band or song or album or genre, and it makes for you a, a radio station made entirely um, of songs like the one that you put in, or like the band that you put in. So one summer, I made a Pandora station for Nickel Creek. And after a couple of songs came on, songs by bands that I'd heard of, another song came on, one that I'd never heard before, a band I'd never heard before, and I swear to you, I heard the angels singing. The band was the Wailing Jennies. The song was Heaven When We're Home. It was a country group of three women who had hit these perfect harmonies. One song in, and I was hooked. I found a place to download their album, Place of Questionable Legality, and for months <laughs> would listen to them hit one beautiful harmony after another. One of the most beautiful things in music for me involves singers hitting perfect harmonies. I don't know if that's true for you, if it makes me weird, I don't know. Maybe it's the math of it. But for, for me, a group singing in harmony is music at its best. Something we got to experience this morning. The beauty is found precisely in that the singers are singing different things. But the connection, the combination, the synchronization produces something much richer, much more beautiful than the sum of the individual parts. I tell you all this because we are going to look this morning at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 has a couple parts to it, and in classical theology, these parts are somewhat at odds. But Psalm 19 weaves them together and connects them in a way that is deeply beautiful, moving, and powerful. It puts these different parts into harmony and creates something quite rich out of them. Let's read it. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. 
May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Yes, that's where I got it from. This psalm deals with three general themes, themes that have their own schools of thought in classical theology and philosophy. And those three themes are natural theology, revelation, and personal experience. Natural theology is the branch of theology that looks at how we can come to knowledge of God through looking at nature, through looking at things that are not God. Revelation says that we can only know God in that God speaks to us, makes himself known to us, typically through the law or through scripture. And the theology of personal experience says that the first place we know of God is through our own lives, through our own experiences. Religious experience of the divine by the autonomous individual is the greatest thing we can know. Now in <coughs> systematic theology, these three branches are often at war with one another. Each will argue that the other two have their flaws for understanding how we first come into contact with God. And while I love a good systematic theology battle royale more than most, sometimes we miss the point when we get caught up in our doctrine. This psalm pays no mind to the fact that these schools of thought could be at odds with one another. Because this psalm isn't primarily trying to do systematic theology. This psalmist is trying to worship. The psalmist beautifully speaks about all the ways in which we can experience God, and then in the final verse, gives us the interpretive key for understanding how they work in harmony. So we're going to start with the last line first, and then go back to the beginning. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. With this line, we know that the psalmist is making a harmony because the psalmist has neatly summed up all three branches in this one line in a short prayer. The psalmist talks about the words of my mouth, the meditations of the heart, and God as his rock and his redeemer. So words expressed through the mouth require first thought, and for most of us, a filter. Words are a revelation of who we are, what we think, what we wish to communicate to others. So, so it is as the Bible speaks about with God. The word of the Lord comes forth to the prophets. Jesus is the word in John. Words are revelation. So the words of my mouth are the psalmist talking about revelation. Next, we have meditations of the heart. This speaks to the more emotional, to the things that build within us. This is what natural theology is about. When you look at a sunset and are brought to a place of worship to the creator that paints with such a brush. And then the psalmist calls God his rock and his redeemer. We know that God is our rock only through experience. When we have stood on God and God has held us firm. We know that God is our redeemer only when we have experienced being redeemed by God. This last bit speaks to our experience with God. So the psalmist puts all three of these branches into a simple prayer that is so deep and so beautiful that I, along with many other preachers, pray this before we preach every Sunday. But this isn't all the psalmist has to say on the three branches. So we're going to go back, back to the beginning, and look at how the psalmist constructs this symphony bearing in mind that the symphony is constructed by someone who loves their God and is moving to a place of worship to bring praise to God for all the ways that the psalmist experiences God. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heaven and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Nature cries out and witnesses to the greatness of the God the psalmist declares. Which I think uh, is something that we who are believers can easily and happily proclaim. If you go out and watch a beautiful sunset, if you are up in the mountains overlooking a gorgeous valley, if you go for a hike and just find yourself at peace, when the azaleas and flowers and trees are in full bloom, you know that there's someone behind it. You know that God is in the world making it beautiful. You know there's a creator and can feel that creator reaching out to you. We can also read this in 2018 as students of the modern scientific era because we attest that science can confirm and affirm our faith rather than being at odds with our faith. The psalmist talks about God pitching a tent for the sun, and the sun rises in its course orderly and daily as God has ordained the sun to do. The psalmist is saying that the heavens are ordered, that there is a logic and reason and rationale to the way that the world works, which means it shouldn't surprise us that classical physics, biology, chemistry, and the modern sciences have based their work on trying to unlock the order that exists in our world. A ball falls with an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared every time. NaCl is table salt every time. You never find that organization of elements in the respective quantities making anything other than table salt. Two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen make water every time. There is order, and that order speaks to the work of a creator, speaks to the work of a designer, speaks to the work of of the glory of God. But we can also read this looking at how the ancients viewed the world. In the ancient world, talking of an order crea creation was revolutionary. Creation, the world, the heavens, seemed anything but ordered, seemed anything but rational, seemed anything but safe. They were unpredictable. Think about the early mythologies, the sun god, the sea god, the god of the harvest. Gods controlled the unpredictable natural and elemental forces of our world. So when the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that God pitched a tent for the sun and the sun follows its course set by God, this is revolutionary. You mean the sun isn't controlled by the sun god? You mean the sun isn't a god pulled by a chariot? And one day, if you don't pay homage to the sun god, the sun will still rise and warm you? This is new thinking. The sun is a thing that God made and follows its predetermined course because that's what God has sent it to do and the sun will warm everyone and everything because that's what God told it to do. This is a statement about the oneness of God and the power of God over these other supposed deities. Finding God in nature was a rejection of the pagan pantheon. For us, finding God in nature can be a rejection of the supreme authority given to science in the modern world 
and a rejection of the faith versus science binary. The heavens are telling the glory of God, not the glory of Ra or Apollo. The heavens are telling the glory of God, not declaring a victory for Copernicus over the Bible. The more we learn, the more the heavens will declare the glory of God. Next, the psalmist switches gears to the Revelation branch. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So the psalmist turns to talking about how the law of God, the word of God, the way God reaches out and reveals himself to us are perfect, trustworthy, beautiful, and bring joy. Some scholars have mentioned that this abrupt shift, uh, this quick transition, is evidence that originally this was two psalms, but I think the way that the psalmist links them all together at the end suggests they're one word. That's proving to you that I did my homework. Oftentimes, we consider laws to be hindrances. How do you feel when you're driving down the road and the light turns yellow and you're in that zone where you know that you don't have enough time to make it, but for a split second you consider gunning it? Did I just reveal too much about my own habits behind the wheel? How do we feel about laws then? How do we feel about speed limits when we're running late? Taxes are established by law. Come April, how do you feel about tax laws? Many times it feels like laws are encroachments, infringements upon our personal freedom. Can't it also be that way with God's law? Let's look back on what the psalmist would have meant by law, which is the Old Testament law. Why can't I have shrimp? Why can't I have bacon? Why can't I wear a nice polyester blend? It breathes so nicely. Or for us, what do you mean I can't do anything on Sunday? What do you mean I should give some money to the church? And 10%? Have you seen housing prices up here? What do you mean by fasting? Not even a cup of coffee? Because you know I have to work, right? But the psalmist says that God's law is delightful, perfect, beautiful, and brings joy to the heart. None of the words I've used to describe me if I haven't had my coffee. They are more precious than gold and sweeter than, than honey. What gets us to that point where we can say God's laws are delightful and sweeter than honey? Eventually, it comes in knowing that we need boundaries. It comes with maturation. It comes in realizing that God cares about us so much that God reaches out to us, that God becomes a part of our lives. And when people are in your life, they try to make it better. They try and encourage the best parts of you, and they try to help you in areas where you need development. They try to make you better. Isn't that what part of us hopes for in our friends? That your presence in their life and their presence in your life make us each a little bit better and probably make our lives better. 
So God comes into our world and seeks to make our life better. And that is what the law is. That is what revelation is at its heart. But some of that only comes when we experience God personally in our lives, which is why the psalm ends with, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. The psalmist ends on a note about personally experiencing God, personally experiencing grace, personally experiencing mercy. Because all this theology stuff isn't just theory. It's real. It's who we are. It's our life story. God comes into our life and his perfection reveals our imperfection. But our God forgives. Our God loves. Our God gives grace. And when we experience forgiveness, when our sins no longer rule over us, the law can be beautiful. Because then it's not so much an infringement on our freedom. It's not a big game of gotcha. It's the way God heals us. Until one day we might be blameless. We might be innocent. We might be sanctified. This psalm is a symphony about the ways that our God reaches out and reveals himself to us. This psalm is a symphony about our God's presence in our world and in our lives. This psalm is a symphony to the ways in which we interact with our God in our lives. We pray that the words of our mouth, we pray that our organized thoughts, the things that reveal who we are, be acceptable in the light of the way that God has revealed himself to be. Through the word of God in scripture, through the law, and through the word which is his son. We pray that the meditations of our hearts, our deepest longings, our purest expressions be acceptable in light of the way that God expressed himself through the beauty of creation. And we pray that we would continue to experience God as our rock and our redeemer. We pray that when we fail, when our love fails, when we break God's perfect law, that God would forgive us. We pray that when we experience brokenness in this life, when, our, when we are hurt, when we feel pain, that God would redeem that hurt and pain and make our lives more richer because of our experiences. And we pray that in times of trouble, in times of anxiety, in times of worry, God would prove to be our rock. God would prove to be the thing which, on which we can build our lives and our hopes. And we come here to worship God. We come here to worship our God because he speaks to us, because he reveals himself to us. We worship our God because the heavens tell of his handiwork. And we worship our God because he loves, forgives, shows mercy, and heals us so that we are a free and forgiven people and might one day be a sanctified people. It's a perfect harmony. It's three different dissonant things placed together in beautiful perfection. And it's simply gorgeous. Our God sings his presence in our lives in perfect harmony. And the beauty of God, our God's presence is beyond words. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. Singing back as best we can in worship and praise to God who is our rock and our redeemer. Let us pray.